So really thankful for you all to be here. Uh, thankful especially for, for Caleb and Lisa Mitchell to be here with us. They are the co-owners and co-founders of the Phoenix Counseling Collective, which is a, a counseling, um, counseling group in downtown Phoenix. They have been open. How long have you guys been open? I'll... Uh, under different names and different <laughs> places. Since about in Phoenix, 2013, but yeah. we've been practice since about 2007. Yeah, so collectively, uh, they've got, what, 30 years of counseling experience between the two of you. Um, yeah, and uh, their, their, their practice uh, serves a really wide range of populations, um, individuals, couples, families, uh, kids, adolescents, basically across the spectrum. Um, so they've got lots of counseling experience um, across all sorts of dem different demographics. Uh, and so they're here today specifically um, to help us understand a little bit about um, some of the mental health effects that the, the COVID pandemic has had, um, some of the things that they've seen in their practice, um, some of the particular issues they've dealt with, uh, especially those pertaining to families, parenting, kids, et cetera. Um, so to open us up, um, before getting into some of the content, I'd love to hear, Kayla, Belisa, a little bit more about um, maybe your vision for your work, for the practice itself. Uh, and then if you could tell us a little bit about your own family, too. Sure. Sure. Can I go? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think our main goal in having a practice and the people that we've asked to be part of the practice as therapists is that we're trying to create a really safe space for anybody to come from all sorts of walks of lives to, um, to grow and, and to find a, a deeper sense of themselves, um, a more intimate connection with themselves, the others, uh, and if they have some uh, sort of spiritual inclination towards that as well. So I think in kind of a nutshell, that, that's what we want to do. We're, we're pretty, try to be really intentional about how we're um, being a really safe place for, for anybody who, who, who needs someone to, to talk with them about their lives. Yeah. Did you add anything? I don't think so. We're in a fun historic house downtown, or I think it's fun. <laughs> um, we're right off of 7th Street and McDowell, and yeah, all of our therapy rooms are in rooms of the house. Um, we have one play therapy room upstairs that's completely geared towards kids. Um, so yeah, just adding some logistics. Yeah, it really uh, is incredible. It feels feels like you're you're walking into someone's home. Super hospitable place. Yeah. Thanks. And uh, Tang is one of our interns, so we're we're glad to have him along with us for the ride. Uh, so yeah. Very excited to, to join what you guys are doing. Tell us a little bit uh, about your own family. Yeah, so Caleb and I have been married 15 years. Um, we've lived as a married couple here and in Seattle. Um, and I say that because I think place has really impacted how we've grown to know ourselves and each other. We have two girls who are eight and 10, um, who have probably taught us more about life and ourselves than anything we've studied or learned. Um, what else? I mean, we love downtown. 
Phoenix. Mm-hmm. We, um, we love that we're a couple hours from the mountains. We love to go camping with the kids and skiing with the kids. Um, kind of foodies a little bit, like good food and good coffee. And um, yeah, I don't know. That's I love it. <laughs> Well, you're in good company with that. Um, all right. So uh, Caleb and Elisa will sort of walk us through um, what I described, uh, content regarding parenting in the pandemic. And yeah, what they've encountered and how they've dealt with that. Um, and then we'll have uh, an open time for question and answer. So um, if you guys have questions really regarding their content specifically, um, though I'm sure they're also open to more general questions about counseling, parenting, et cetera. Um, so uh, it looks like everyone is already muted um, and I will let them take it away. Um, it's fun to see some of your names. And so, hi, I see a few of you who I haven't seen in months and part of me is like, oh, I just wanna catch up. But I know that that's not what this time is for, but hi. Yeah, and please save your questions or we, we are therapists. <laughs> we do really well with question answer conversational style. So we are going to present here at the beginning, but we would love to, to have questions and dialogue for sure yeah, um, we, at the end. We really want this to just be kind of a jumping off point for us to have some language and some concepts to start kind of working through. So, yeah. Um, First of all, thank you. Uh, We feel honored and excited to be having this conversation. Um, For Tang and Kimberly and Danae for setting this all up, thank you guys for for having us. Um, So as Caleb and I were talking about, oh goodness, what do we wanna talk about under the title of parenting in a pandemic? We were kind of throwing back this idea of like, is it different? Like is parenting in a pandemic different? And I think, the answer we have is yes and no. Um, so to set up the conversation tonight, we kind of wanted to talk about um, this, maybe set up some ideas and concepts about what does healthy parenting look like? I think that in the pandemic and in the last maybe six months, uh, things have been intensified. Um, so really it has intensified our parenting styles um, that have always been present. Um, so we're gonna set up a little bit of what, what does it possibly look like to have parenting? Um, a lot of these concepts and what we're gonna be talking about do stem from, yes, we've studied psychology. Um, you could put us in the, in the category of experts, if you will, <laughs> but I, I think that more of what we've learned about parenting is from being parents, like the trials and errors that we have encountered and still do every day with our own children. Um, so that's kind of where we're gonna start today, this overview of what does healthy parenting look like? Yeah, and so we wanted to start with this question of, uh, to kind of orient us to, to dive in and the question of like, what is the purpose of parenting? Um, and I think just kind of as a starting off definition, I think parenting is this process of assisting another person to become an adult. Um, and what I like about this definition of assisting another person to become the adult um, uh, 
and I would, I would add like the adult that they are because they are the kind of already those, those bits of their adulthood and who they're going to be are already present as a child. Um, what I like about that definition is that it's not about um, trying to get our kids to be good. It's not about trying to get our kids to not bother us. Um, it, it is, it's the fact that we've been entrusted with this really um, beautiful and difficult uh, and sometimes quite overwhelming task of teaching another person how to be in this world. Um, there, there's a neurobiologist, or he's a, he's a neuropsychiatrist actually, who makes this point that the word dis, uh, discipline comes from the root word disciple, which means to teach. Um, and I think we often think of discipline as like telling our kids when they've been bad or, or trying to get them to be good. But what he's trying to say is, no, what we're, what we're, what we're in the business of parents uh, is, is the business of teaching. Um, there's this great quote by, uh, I'm going to look here and read it because it's a long quote, but it's by David Brooks, who's, um, some of you have heard some of his podcasts, some of you heard uh, or read some of his, uh, he writes, he's a journalist and he, write, he writes a lot. And he said, we have to create the context where learning can happen. And we learn from the people we love. He goes on to say, it reminded us as teachers that what we really teach is ourselves, our co contagious passion for our subjects and our students. It reminded us that children learn from people they love and that love in this context means willing the good of another and offering active care for the whole person. And what I love about that quote is what it's saying is that our kids are going to learn from us when they know that, they, that we love them. Um, and if there's trouble with that, with um, the teaching process, it, a lot of times it has to do with that there's a relational break that, that has gone on. And the other thing I love about it is that it tells us that we teach explicitly and implicitly. So explicitly, we're what we say and what we're doing, what we're saying to them and what we're teaching them is something that needs to be intentional. Um, it needs to be something that we're saying uh, to them on a regular basis, but it's also implicit. They're watching us. They, they see how we respond to each other. They see how we respond to the mailman. They see how we respond to our, the teachers. They, 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 they're, they're watching us. They see how, they respond, how we respond to them. Um, and then Siegel also, and there's, there's two books that might be helpful to throw out there. Like, um, one is No Drama Discipline, and the other one is The Whole-Brained Child. And, and both of those have been really helpful for us as we've been parents. And quite honestly, I think, if we're really honest, there's plenty of times that we know better and we don't do it. Um, and that includes these, he, he uses these four S's. And the first one is, is that we need, that our kids need for, uh, to be seen by us, which means that 
he puts it this way, like perceiving the mind behind the behavior. Uh, you, you have a great illustration of this. Yeah, so I had a friend tell me recently that her uh, child uh, wanted to, uh, she was potty trained during the day, and um, she was really excited to not wear pull-ups that night. And so they, uh, came up with this like sticker chart and said, okay, if you can make it to 10 days, then you can wear your undies to bed instead of your pull-ups. And so um, basically it was, you, you can't go to the bathroom during, at, at night in your pull-ups. So it needs to be dry. Your pull-ups need to be dry in the morning and then you get a sticker. We do that 10 times and you will sufficiently be potty trained. Like that was kind of the, how they set this up. So morning one um, happens and the little girl says, mom, I didn't go. Like my pull-ups are dry. And the mom's like, oh my gosh, it is. Like, do you need to go now? And she's like, no. And the mom was like, oh, that's interesting because it's usually the first thing this child did in the morning. Um, she was like, okay, well, things are changing. And so Morning two happens and same thing, pull-ups are dry. Do you need to go to the bathroom? The little girl says, I don't need to go. And the mom's like, did you go? Like, it kind of smells like pee in your room. And she was like, no. And she like felt the bed, the bed was dry. She's like, okay, so morning three comes, pull-ups are dry, same thing, girl doesn't have to go. But it really smelled like pee on morning three. And so come to find out the, the little girl had interpreted like, not going, it's not just not going in the pull-up, but like doesn't have to go. So when the mom said, do you have to go in the morning? Uh, the little girl was like, no, because she feared that if she said yes and went in the potty, that that would ruin the sticker chart. So what she had been doing was getting up in the morning and going and peeing in her beanbag chair that was in the corner of her room. <laughs> and so mom found it, sopping wet from three days of pee. <laughs> um, and, and the mom just felt like so devastated, like, oh, I failed to like tell this girl, like she, she's been living in fear that she wouldn't get a sticker if she went potty, period. Like there was some disconnect in, in the way we communicated this. And when we were talking about this idea of being seen, that it is perceiving the mind behind the behavior, I felt like that was such a helpful example. Like if I found, you know, she was like, if I, if I, if I just, was looking at the behavior and she was just peeing on her beanbag, I would have been furious and <laughs> like there would have been consequences. But the idea of having compassion because I understood like her mind was actually doing it out of fear and it wasn't out of like manipulation or, or anything um, that the behavior and it didn't really matter. I mean, they had to throw away the beanbag, but really it helped her understand her child more and the child therefore felt seen by her parent um, in the whole the whole thing. So anyway. Um, I've never done this, but I've heard of some parents who jump to a negative conclusion about their children. Um, she's shaking her head because I do it. Um, and it has been a real change for me um, to begin to kind of slow myself down and go, there might be a different explanation for what's going on here versus my jump to conclusion about how like crappy my kids be. Um, and so I, I, what I love about the idea of being seen, it is, it is trying to look for the, the most like genuine drive in our kid 
versus assuming that there is something horrible about them and this is why they did what they did. Um, not to say that our kids don't, uh, we, we do not have angels as children, but I think that when we're jumping to those negative conclusions, it can be really painful. This, the second S is, is safety. Um, it means that we're avoiding actions or responses that frighten or hurt our, hurt our kids. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that when Elisa talks about flipping your lid. Um, so we'll get to that. Uh, the third is soothed. And this, is, this will also kind of go with some of the things that Elisa will talk about. But we're, we're helping them deal with difficult emotions and situations. Our kids do not come out of the womb knowing how to respond to painful situations in life. Like our job is to, as parents is to help them learn how to navigate that. Um, the, the last S is that they're secure, that they develop an internalized sense of well-being. Uh, so they're at peace with themselves. There is a, an enjoyment of who they are, um, and they're, they're not, which, which means that they're gonna be more emotionally stable, and they're not gonna be as um, volatile emotionally. The other thing I like about this definition of parenting, assisting another person to be the adult um, that they are, is that this is a very long process. Zero to adulthood, which is usually for um, our, our prefrontal cortex, develop, becomes mostly developed around age 25. So we're talking about 25 years where we're trying to help this person learn how to be an adult, which means, at least and I joke about this a lot of times, that we're playing the long game. Uh, and oftentimes I think the frustration comes when we expect that our kids should have already learned something and they're just not getting it. And I think part of realizing that it's a long game gives us some patience and some grace for them, but it also means that we're not pushing so hard um, and getting so frustrated with them. And we're allowing the learning process to take its time. So um, our girls started out in Montessori schools, uh, which we loved. And one of the things that we loved about it um, is that they put them in like these groupings of, uh, what would, there was, Kindergarten and primary, primary three to, which, three to six year olds, three to six year olds, and then seven to nine year olds. -ish. First to third grade. But what's great is that if they didn't get something in the first year, that was okay. They still had a couple of years to figure this out. And when it came to reading, we both had kids who were a little slower in reading. Um, and I'm an avid reader. Lisa reads a lot. And it was bug bugging me. I was like, I, my kids should be able to learn quicker how to read. And I would get frustrated when they wouldn't get words. And Elisa had to just say, hey, we're playing a long game. Can you just be patient with them? Um, and, and honestly, like when I started kind of pulling back, I was a lot less anxious. They were a lot less anxious. And the learning happened when it needed to. Um, there's another example of, uh, there was a, a parent who 
there's a couple who sat in my office and they were worried because their their four-year-old was still was still coming into their bed sometimes and i just said if they're coming into your bed when they're 14 that's a problem but they're not 14 so can you just let this season be what it is um and so I, I i just think that takes the pressure off us but it also means that we're taking the pressure off them which allows for learning and um, we'll go into that a little bit more too. Um, mistakes are part of the process. I see so, as a, seeing adolescents uh, and their parents, I see so many parents trying to keep their adolescents from making mistakes. And in so doing, they're actually short-circuiting the learning process. There's, there's so many things that we learn as humans that we have to kind of fumble around with at first and then we find our way. And so I think uh, when we think about our kids making mistakes, we're, we're okay with it. We're okay with that being part of the learning process versus it being uh, you're bad, you're not good, uh, you failed, um, which just in, in essence keeps shame on our kids and makes it more difficult for them. Uh, the last thing I would say about this definition of of parenting is that they're a unique person. They're not an extension of us. So they may not be like us. And so that part, that last part of that definition is helping them become the adult that they are is really important because what it means is that we as our, as the parents, one of the primary things we can do is be a student of our kid. It means that we're there to learn and understand the nuances of who they are. We, we uncover them and we're able to, to help them in their sense of self and go, aha, have you noticed you're really good at this? And, oh man, you seem to really enjoy it when, when you're in this space. Um, uh, our, one of our daughters, well, both of our daughters dance um, one of our daughters is a little quieter than, than the other. But after she has moved her body and dance, she becomes a chatterbox. Like you cannot get her to stop talking on the way home. And so that has been something that we begin to talk to her about of how much movement of her body kind of helps unlock her own heart and gives her some ability to uh, tell us more and tell others about who she is. So. Yeah, so that was the brief overview <laughs> of potentially healthy parenting. Um, and maybe I'm just gonna add to that. But I think- Oh, you're gonna add, okay. <laughs> um, I think in, in this pandemic, right, and, and we've all experienced this really differently, and our kids have experienced this really differently. Uh, but I, I would say these overarching themes that I have heard from parents of children all ages, from toddlers to college-aged kids, is I am finding it hard to interact with my kids <laughs> at such a consistent rate, at <laughs> such an intensified rate. Um, we're often either spending more time with our children 
or life has gotten so chaotic and busy that the time we are spending with our children is really intensified. I think especially for those um, whose kids have gone back to school like in the last couple of weeks, I've heard a lot about that. Like, oh, life just feels a little bit like it's on stress or like we're kind of in this ticking bomb right now. Um, and so I wanted to share one of the things that I have found most helpful in my entire parenting career. <laughs> and that is thinking through these ideas of like, why, why is it so hard to interact with our kids sometimes? Why is it so hard to be patient? Why is it so hard to want to understand them, to be kind to them, to uh, respond to them well versus just to react to them? And so realizing that what we are responding to, our children, are having their own physiological responses, emotional responses, and neurological responses. And so we are responding to all of that in our children. Um, we're responding to both their parasympathetic nervous system and their sympathetic nervous system. Uh, and for those of you that are like, what, what are those two systems? Uh, they are, our parasympathetic system is probably the one that's at play in most of us right now. Uh, when our brain is integrated, when our bodies are relatively calm, when our organs are functioning kind of as needed, when our heart rate is really stable, our uh, breathing is pretty regulated, that's our parasympathetic system kind of regulating and just functioning our body. We're not thinking about it. When we switch into what some people would call fight or flight mode, uh, it's when our sympathetic nervous system is turned on. It's when we have been triggered, it's when we feel threatened. Uh, it is that like, ah, kind of mode that happens in us. And oftentimes we know very well when that happens, right? Like if the fire alarm goes off right now, like we're all kind of gonna jump, we're gonna feel those like endorphins rushing through, the cortisol running through, the adrenaline pumping through, and we're gonna feel it both physiologically, we're all gonna name what happened and realize that, what, that, that is what's happening. But it often happens in moments where we don't expect it. And so I'm going to give you guys a hand model of the brain. And this is what I have found super helpful for me and for my own children. Um, and I, this is also comes from what Caleb, uh, who he was mentioning earlier, Dan Siegel. He's out of UCLA. He's written a lot of books um, from an age range of parenting from the younger, like no drama discipline. He writes a fantastic adolescent book called Brainstorm. He writes the whole brain child, and then he writes about adult kind of mindset. And really it's a lot of the same overlapping ideas and concepts because we all have human brains, but he just kind of talks about it in different um, lifespan stages. So this is not my hand model of the brain. I'm, I'm taking it from him, but if you Google or YouTube or look up, you know, Daniel Siegel's hand model of the brain, you'll get a bunch of different, um, you'll get him and lots of YouTube videos of him doing it. But there's also some that are more incorporated for younger kids. So I'm not really sure the age range of kids, of your guys' kids, um, but probably anybody from nine, 10 years old on up could understand maybe Daniel Siegel's explanation of it. And I would say anybody younger, you might want to look into um, a lot of like play therapists or um, child psychologists have adapted ways of describing this hand model. Um, so this is for you, but also is really helpful to teach your children. So how he describes it is this is your spinal column, which goes into your brainstem. And 
what you have right here is if you pull your thumb over, you have your most kind of primitive brain. So he would maybe even say your reptilian brain and your mammalian brain. This is your limbic system. Um, this is what reptiles, mammals have. It, it helps us kind of function in a response sort of way to what we may need. Um, this is what some people would call your downstairs brain. As humans, we have what's called your upstairs brain with uh, your neocortex and your prefrontal cortex. And this is what makes us human. So your neocortex right here uh, takes in a lot of the world. So five senses, sight, sound, um, it, 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 I don't know what, actually what more to say about that. <laughs> your prefrontal cortex is like, what what makes us relatable human beings so what makes us be able to like read a room have empathy uh, critical think it is super important for us as humans to have this prefrontal cortex and it really is right behind your forehead area of the brain uh functioning it's also what helps us uh have language yes to you know right now we're all using our prefrontal cortex um to listen, to take in the to take in the language, we're using it to speak language, to tell, and so. Yeah. Right. So Siegel would say if all these things are functioning, and if you notice, your prefrontal cortex is like one synapse away from this limbic system here, um, but they need the the prefrontal cortex basically interprets your limbic system and kind of gives you the ability to pause and make choices based on what you are taking in. Well, as soon as our brains feel threatened, our prefrontal cortex flips. So he would call it flipping the lid. It literally shuts down and we start functioning from this limbic system, from our primitive brain. And it, we do this because it is survival mode, right? So if this house that we're in or your house uh, caught on fire right now, then our lids would flip and we would, all, we would all respond differently. Some of us might freeze. Some of us may like break a window immediately. Some of us may like calmly get up and walk out the door, but our survival mode would be kicking in and that's how we would be responding. And that's good and helpful because we would not want to be sitting here being like, what does it feel like to be getting warmer as the flames are burning right above your head? Like, are you nervous? Like that, that's just not helpful in that sort of context. Um, so, so our brains are wired this way for a purpose. The kind of conflict that, that happens is that our brains flip off, flip their lid and turn off grid in any perceived threat. So it might not be a threat, but our lids flip. And this happens all the time in all ages of human beings. It's really easy to see in toddlers when they're building Legos one minute and then 10 seconds later, they're throwing things across the room and kicking and screaming. And you're like, what just happened? Uh, their lid literally flipped, all that went off grid and they are kicking and screaming, right? <laughs> or they've completely shut down. Some kids will just go really silent and. It's the same idea, like what just happened? And because we are not in their brain, we don't know, but their brain felt a threat. Maybe it was just the threat of not being able to put things together. Um, for older kids who are in school, maybe they're working fine all of a sudden, you know, schoolwork or homework, and then they're like cursing and throwing their pen across the floor and telling you that 
they hate you. Um, and again, it's like, what just happened? Uh, same thing, like they, they felt threatened. Maybe they were doing fine and now all of a sudden they felt like ridiculously overwhelmed or, or they felt stupid because they couldn't get a problem and that feels really threatening. And so with that lid being flipped, here they are functioning from this part of the brain and kind of all rationality goes out the window. Why is that helpful? Because it is so informative. Anytime we have that response in ourselves, like, what just happened? Like, how did I go from zero to 10? Or when we're witnessing it in our kids, it's so helpful to realize something physiologically and neurologically is happening in them. When, so if, if the lid is flipped, the only helpful thing to do is to reintegrate our brain. So like Caleb said, when it's flipped, our language ability, our ability to interpret what's happening and then put it into language is completely gone. So when we say to our children, use your words, or maybe I'm the only one that says that, um, that is impossible for them. Like they literally cannot use their words because it is inaccessible to them. And so for us to realize, oh, they, they can't use their words. Um, their only mode is the survival, kicking, screaming, or shutting down, fight, flight, freeze, or faint mode. Then what we can, how we best serve them is helping them integrate. Now that's a whole long conversation and kind of exploration with our own selves and our own kids of how do you integrate? It looks really different. I would add that this is where the safety and the soothing comes in. One, we really have to create a safe context. And I think this is where I would add in that sometimes timeouts are used as punishment and more of a, of a lobbying of, uh, it, to the kid. It feels like you just, you just lobbed an arrow at them. And so their reaction to that is going to usually be more anger because their lid is flipped. Um, I would also add that, um, and I realize this can be controversial for some people, but uh, Daniel Siegel really does a, a, a great job of explaining how spanking doesn't work. Um, because what you're doing is you're taking someone who's, whose lid is flipped and you're just continuing to flip the lid. Um, and that what, what is actually necessary for teaching, right? Because that's what we're to be doing with our kids is teaching them. The spanking isn't actually teaching anything because all we're doing is we're keeping that lid flipped and they're not feeling safe, they're not feeling seen, and, and, the, and they're not, um, we're not helping them soothe and calm down so that they can like neurologically, physiologically be able to even hear us. Um, when you, when you have people who are in um, really extreme crises, there are plenty of things that they miss about what's happening because their lid is flipped and they can't take in all the information about what's happening because they're in their sympathetic nervous system. Uh, they're, being, they're acting out of their sympathetic nervous system. So you were good. No, I think the timeouts is... Uh, Siegel actually uses the term time in. We use the term in our house time outs, but not as punishment for the behavior as actually, hey, this, this is really good and necessary. Like 
if, if you know how to integrate your brain and to close your lid, like that's a lifelong skill that a lot of adults don't have. <laughs> um, and so modeling that we need it and that they need it. Um, and that's the learning process. Like there's, there's no, oh, well, just do these three things and your lid closes. One of our daughters has to move her body. Like if we tell her to like go lay down or breathe or read, like we are threatening her more <laughs> and her lid's gonna stay flipped. Um, and so for her, it may look like going and riding a bike or jumping on the trampoline or doing something of that sort. And, and the goal isn't just to close the lid and like then go at it again, but, but conversation about what happened can't happen until the lid is closed. And that's, so, so the goal is recognizing when and how, and why it flipped potentially, closing the lid, and then kind of addressing those four S's, like how, how do you name how they were seen? How do you create a safe space to, to talk about? Like, okay, maybe that behavior wasn't okay, um, but I see that you felt something really strongly and probably felt really out of control. Now let's talk about it. Like, let, let's give you other options. So next time you might not have to do that. And next time they're going to do it, right? Because they're kids, but eventually they won't because they feel like, oh, I have choice in this. Like, I know how to close my lid because I've given, been given tools and skills. Um, I don't just have to flip my lid and get punished and come back out. And that's the pattern that we are in. And this is not magic. Like I said, it's the long game, right? Like our kids. Still have plenty of blow ups. We, I came home to one today. Um, it's just, this is part of the learning process for them. Um, what exacerbates it is, is that guess who else has their own lid? We do as parents. And so what happens um, is that a lot of times we're not aware that their lid just flipped and in reaction, our lid just flipped. And so sometimes the timeouts need to be for us as parents. Um, you know, when our kids are really little, we can't get too far away from them. They, they need some kind of, you know, being monitored and watched so they don't kill themselves. But, but I think as our kids get older, we can take bigger breaks. And one of the things that we have said to our kids is, hey, mom and dad, we need, our, my lid is flipped. I need to go take a break to calm myself down so that I can actually have this conversation with you. Um, I will say that, that using this language, and you don't have to use this language, it just was really helpful for me and it seems helpful for our own kids. It also normalizes that this is a human response and reaction and all people's lid flips versus, gosh, you are the annoying toddler or the disruptive teenager and your behavior is horrible and shame on you. It's kind of like, all our lids flip and you will see ours flip and yours will flip. And we also get to choose how we're going to regulate ourselves and what we're going to do with that. My eight year old has no problem saying, mom, your lid is flipped. <laughs> and I really love that because it means that she feels safe enough to call me out. Um, it's also really helpful to be like, 
You're right. Um, but then she knows when I leave, and usually I try and say, I, 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 you're right, I need to go take a break, that it's actually healthy and a good thing. Um, if not, then usually the response for parents is, well, you're making my life hard and it's your fault, which, you know, leads to a lot of things, um, but not real helpful. Yeah. So. yeah. And sometimes, sometimes we don't like to be told that our lid is slipped as adults, but it's true. It really, it really is. Um, when, when we can, when we have this kind of mentality, it means that we can be much more gracious, much more patient and much more kind with our little, little persons who are trying to learn how to be adults. Because what we realize is we're still trying to figure it out too. Um, and, you know, I think what is, what is difficult for me at times, so I'll just speak for me personally, is, is that I know better. I, I know what my lid flip looks like. I, I talk to people about it. And I still sometimes give timeouts because I'm just mad and I want them to feel some sense of punishment. And it's not helpful. Every, every time I, I've done it, it's, it's not worked. <laughs> And I keep going back to it, but, but that's because my lid is flipped. And so I think um, we all lose it, which brings us to kind of this last thing. And I think we're, oh, we're out of time. We, we, we can talk a lot. <laughs> that's so very important. It, it is that we, uh, we will lose it and we will rupture the relationship with our children. We will, we will harm our interaction with them. We, we will fail at the four S's. Um, but what is most important in those situations is the repair work that we do with our children, the apologies, the naming of, hey, dad just, he missed it. Uh, I, I'm, tell me what that was like for you. How, how did that feel when dad you know, told you to go to your room, yelled at you and told you, he was, he was uh, you know, really angry with, with what you did. Like, what was that like? Um, and, and so realizing that the, the, the repair work is the most important thing. It's not that we don't make mistakes. We can't go into parenting going, I'm not going to make any mistakes. I'm not going to rupture the relationship at all. Um, we're never going to learn if we just kind of expect we're not going to make a mistake. Uh, but if we're able to prepare and do that work with our kids, what we do is we teach them what reconciliation is. We teach them what it is to be in relationship, have it tear and be able to come back together, which is invaluable for all of the relationships that they will have going forward. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that? No. I mean, in essence, the repair work, which is only done when our lids are closed, I would add, is it is kind of reiterating the, those four S's. It is saying, oh, I missed you, but I see you now. Um, I wasn't safe, but I want to be safe. Uh, kind of creating that secure environment. And so it, it I guess I, just kind of to reiterate the fact that it's not so much that we have to avoid the ruptures um, and that because if, if we do that, there's just going to be shame upon shame heaped upon ourselves as parents and our children because every time 
something doesn't work. Um, it's like, oh, here we are again. But it's trusting that, oh, we, we get to repair this. Um, and in repairing, uh, we're, we're doing what we hoped to do in the first place and hopefully even making our relationship and our bond even stronger or safer. So. Okay. Anything else? I don't think so. Okay. We'll, we'll just go to questions and Thank you guys so much for, for leading us through that. That's uh, an incredibly helpful um, kind of structure uh, to think through things. And um, I imagine really helpful um, even outside of a pandemic, but especially so when we're in this. Um, so for questions, if anyone has, you're more than welcome to unmute yourself um, and just ask in a dialogue format. If for any reason you can't do that or don't want to do that, um, I open the chat box. Uh, you can type it in there and I'll, uh, I can read it off to, to Caleb and Lisa. But floor is all yours. Hey, Erin, I, hi, I can't hear you, but I see your mouth moving. <laughs> no, still. Erin, if you, if it's easier, you're welcome to type it and I can read it out to them. All right, I saw that. In the meantime, if, if anyone else has a, has a question, go ahead as Aaron's typing hers out. What are ideas you have for being that safety of the, of the four S's for when we flip our lids? I have two toddlers, so I feel like, and I grew up in a good family, but not a believing in Jesus family. So I feel like we definitely had a lot of there's a lot of yelling, so I grew up with that, and I don't want to yell. Like, I know that's not safe. It never made me feel safe, but I'm trying to learn, like, new ways of, yeah, when I respond, not in anger, to, like, be that safe place, even when it's, like, you just dumped out all of these knives or, you know, something that just, just your first response isn't, like, let's hug it out. So, yeah, there's good safety welcoming while still being like teaching them when when you're upset if that makes sense yeah I think I wonder how you begin to know in yourself and and maybe maybe the safety is a new word or maybe it's not I don't know but asking yourself like do do I feel like I have the capacity to be a safe and calm human being right now? Um, and if the answer is no, then figuring out what you, what you may need. Um, and, and this is where I think there's, there isn't one or there's not even 20, here's what you need to do <laughs> skills um, because it looks different for everybody. Um, I mean, there are very, um, 
practical and neurological bilateral kind of stimulation that you can do with yourself and your toddler. I'm not sure how old your kids are, but, but from a, like a very tangible thing, sitting down or standing and doing something like bilateral tapping, what that's doing is actually telling your right and your left brain and your top and your bottom brain like to, to come on grid. Um, to start firing and you're kind of forcing your lid to close. Um, there's, there's different ways, but some sort of bilateral action, you can do bigger actions like jumping jacks um, or even tapping along this vagus nerve. Um, it may sound a little wonky, but your, your body can't do these sort of mo mo uh, movements without your brain actually uh, sending those things synapses back and forth, right, left, top, and down. And so I, I always feel a little strange when clients come in and they're like telling me these big stories and I'm like, oh, let's just tap, like let's do a butterfly tap. Um, but I would encourage you by yourself or with your kids to, and you can, you know, Google and look up bilateral stimulization or just some other soothing thing. Some people find it really calming to take their hands, palms facing up and sit on them. Um, they find that very soothing. And what that's also doing is kind of sitting on both sides of your hands. Again, you're activating that vagus nerve, which again is kind of firing in all areas of your brain. Um, but there are so many scientific like studies and research that shows that if we were to like hook you up to monitors and you know I had lost it and then I did this for 30 seconds to a minute that so many markers including my cortisol would be decreased my blood pressure would be decreased and so I think first of all you have to triage <laughs> like how do I get myself to like a, a level where I feel like I can be okay <laughs> that's like first and foremost and then once your lid is kind of closed or at least more so closed then you can figure out now what do i do next right um but the the triage is so important i think so many times our lid is flipped and we just want to like keep going like i don't know if you've experienced this but i have heard myself it's almost like i'm out of body i've heard myself and i'm like at least you got to calm down but i can't calm down i'm just like going um and i think that's an indicator that yeah my lids flipped that that prefrontal cortex is is not connected to my limbic system and so i am a train spiraling off the tracks <laughs> and i need to figure out what i need to do to um and I wish I could say, do these five things, but I don't know for you what those would be. Taking a drink of water and walking around, like even like, you know, an, a room of your house. Um, the, the great thing- Maybe after you pick up the knives. Oh, well, maybe after you pick up the knives, if they're, <laughs> yes, if they're laying out. Um, the great thing about younger kids is that they might think some of these things are funny and humor actually begins can begin to help us regulate, right? Like if you're like, we need to tap and then we need to walk around the room five times, they're gonna be like, you're crazy mom, but this is really fun. And even in doing that, you're like, okay, like I, I'm okay, I'm a human being, I'm still really mad or I, you know, still I'm feeling my heartbeat out of my chest, but like I'm, I'm starting to come a little bit more into myself um, and then figure out what next steps maybe. 
Um, so that's, that's a quick thought. <laughs> I, I would also add, add that doing breathe, like breathing as well. So if you've done any kind of meditative breathing or there's some other breathing exercises, like I, I do one where you breathe in for four counts and you hold it for seven and then you breathe out for eight and you do that like three sets. And what, what it does is that begins to bring back online your parasympathetic nervous system. And it, it may sound a little woo-woo what Elise is talking about, but we intrinsically know that this is what will help because we do this with our babies. I mean, if you remember the, the like, what is that, three S's or the five S's, I can't remember, it's been a little while, but you know, we're supposed to shush to, to um, kind of shake and then, uh, well, not shake, but you know, what, what was, what was I don't remember. I don't know. But, <laughs> but, but essentially, that's what we're doing with those babies because it emulates what it's like to be in the mother's womb. And so that is what we're doing with ourselves as adults is we're sort of like kind of doing some of that to get ourselves back to this place of, of calm. I will add to that. I don't know. Um, it is one of my most favorite kind of dramatic experiences of watching uh, a human shift from sympathetic to parasympathetic. So if you have had a child, particularly like a newborn those first few months, screaming, crying, we had a lot of those um, in those first few months, and you're soothing them and then they finally do this breath and it's like, and everything in their body shifts. Like you feel that like kind of different breathing and then they settle. Their uh, parasympathetic nervous system just shifted. And so if you can figure out ways to have that happen in you, you will begin to be more in tune with, oh, that just happened. Oh, I feel more like myself. Um, usually we're not taught that. I mean, I think we are talking about teaching our children how to be. But if we don't know how to do it, we have to teach ourselves how to do it first. I did not have parents who taught me any of these things. So I had to learn as an adult how to soothe myself that I knew I had choice when I was overstimulated, how to regulate myself. Um, and I think that's where I say my kids have also kind of taught me so much is that I have had to, to kind of teach myself in order to teach my kids. Um, so I went off a little, a little bit. We're back. I think one other thing I would add is I think what has also been helpful, I've seen this in clients, I've seen this in myself, is beginning to do some of the work um, in my own therapy around why do these kinds of things flip my lid? Um, and there are stories, there are histories, there are um, there are other experiences that are driving what's happening in the present. Uh, there's, there's, one, there's one doctor who says that 90% of what's happening in the present is from the past. Um, and and I, that might be a slight overstatement, but what, what I think he's getting at um, is that we are often afraid something that happened before is gonna happen again. Um, and that our flipping the lid is the expectation that what's about to happen right now is what similar to what happened before, and this can't happen. Uh, and just to give like a simple, like silly example about this is 
last night, uh, we had 30 minutes to, before the girls went to bed. Uh, my oldest, I, was, uh, I said, how about we play a game? Of course, she picks a game that takes usually an hour and a half to play. But I'm like, fine, we'll play it. My second, my second daughter's like, well, I don't want to play that game. And then they start fighting. And internally, I just went, my night that I wanted to have with them, I wanted to have like some connection with them before they went to bed, it's gone. Why? Because this has happened before. And I was sad. And I actually literally walked around the house to calm myself down and breathe so that I could come back and kind of go, girls, what do you want to do? Because we, we've only got this much time. But, but that was me, like, and, and so, so I just think that that can also be somewhat helpful. Thanks for your question. I think yeah. that's a really big question. I wish I could talk more to you about it, but. <laughs> Any other questions? Again, feel free if uh, your camera's off or you're with a group or kids are screaming in the background, feel free to message me. Um, as, people are as people are thinking or waiting, I'm, I am wondering, um, more generically speaking, what, what sorts of um, challenges or hazards or threats uh, have, have you guys seen arise in families specifically because of like, due to the COVID pandemic and all of the confinement and limitations and et cetera, et cetera. Um, God knows how many, how many like after effects there have been. Um, how, how have you seen that specifically impact families? And, and um, I also wonder, do you, do you foresee long-term effects? Uh, and if so, what are, what are things that we can do now to, to sort of hedge against those? Yeah. Yes. I think I'm not an optimist, but, <laughs> uh, but I do think we have a pretty unique opportunity to teach our kids how to breathe, to regulate themselves in a really difficult time. And if they can begin to do that now, that is, that, that is going to, help them in life. It's going to help our relationship with them. I've talked to a number of people who've said, man, I have, I have not been with my kids this much. Um, it's actually been really fun. Um, and, and I love to hear those. I, and they're also the ones who said, I can't stand my kids. You know, it, it is, it is a, it's, it's a real mixed bag, but I do think that this could be a real opportunity for us to grow deeper in our relationships with our kids and help them grow deeper in their knowledge of themselves as well as become more regulated human beings. And regulated human beings aren't racist. Regulated human beings don't kill people. Regulated human beings don't um, steal from people. Like they can bring good to the world. And so I think that is like some hope for me um, that maybe some of that will happen. I know there's plenty of other harm that has gone on as well, and there's a lot of other scary things too. So I don't, I don't want to. Um, domestic violence is is way up 
in the midst of this pandemic. Um, there's, there's plenty of other really scary things, but, but I do, there is some hope for, for parents who are taking parenting. Their, their like, job of being able to teach and assist a person to become, you know, who they are. Uh, it's really kind of a cool time. Yeah, I think there has been more opportunity in the last six months to really lean in to having conversations with our kids who are who range from ages one to adulthood on so many different levels. Um, and and I think the older our kids can be, the more curious we get to be with what they are hearing, what they're experiencing, whether it be you know coronavirus, whether it be Black Lives Matter, um, online school, like the conversation definitely looks different, but we have such a unique opportunity right now to, to be curious about our children. Whereas I think in years past, it's just been the same mundane or not even mundane, but routine, busy life that we, we miss our kids. We assume so much that this is forcing us, if we are willing, to be curious about what they are hearing, what are their fears, what are their hopes, um, and and get to do something that we never had to do before. Um, I think I have been surprised asking my conversations with kids, again, ranging in age, um, almost always, I feel like kids, I think are gonna look back at this um, not with this like 2020, how horrible, right? Like we see the memes, we have the conversations, we are experiencing like dread and fear and all the things like it, it, it's election year. Like there, there's just, all, there's too many things, but the kids, especially younger kids are like, we got out of school in March. Like we've gotten to go be home with our mom. Like I've learned to cook this year. I've learned to bake. Like I, I, I got a new dog. How many people got new dogs in this season of life? Um, there's just been like so much newness and so much uh, having to like adapt and create that I, th I think part of it is what we are experiencing in the world, how do we hold that and know that our kids are experiencing the weight and depending on the age and where they're at, they may be experiencing it tremendously. And a lot of our kids, if you ask them about the last six months, they're like, it's kind of great. Like, um, and so I think it is so unique um, and maybe it feels like I'm avoiding the question tank, but I, I feel- No, that's great such a I've also sat with families who it's it's been devastating on on so many levels and I think their story feels very very different than families who like haven't lost a job and um, are living a pretty privileged life and their kids are you know um, still got to go on vacations this summer like those those are very different scenarios um, and yet in both, we still get to enter in and be curious and kind of see if we can provide those four S's for, for any scenario that, that, that's playing out. So yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. No, that's a, that's a really beautiful um, perspective to, and 
even in the the myriad of different circumstances we find ourselves in to to be able to kind of approach things as a as opportunity to invest and learn and grow and um, I think that's that's incredible. Any other questions out there? I have a question. Yeah. Um, how would you respond to um, your kids missing their friends and wanting to do things out, like just to get out and kind of go back to normal? Um, I have four boys, uh, 14, 13, no, he's not 14, 15, <laughs> 13, seven, and almost six. Um, and they just miss hanging out with their friends, you know, like we, this has been a good time for our family. The four boys have gotten like way closer and they were already like best friends before, but like now it's just like a whole different cool level. Um, but they still miss their friends and I don't know how to, how to keep saying like, Oh, we still have to social distance or we still have to be careful or no, we can't go do this thing with like, you know, our whole group of friends and stuff like that. And part two of my question is because they don't have their friends like all the time going over to their house or them coming over or us doing our group things. Um, I've kind of become like their friend <laughs> in a way, which is a unique opportunity. I know that, I mean, we do have the, the, um, the balance of, I, I'm not their friend, I'm their mom. But um, with my older two being teenagers and like them wanting to hang out with me all the time is like a win for me. Um, but at the same time, like, okay, this is gonna sound terrible, but I, okay, I love spending time with them. And I think they're like the coolest human beings. And I actually would love to be their friend, um, but when it's like the weekend and they can like party till like 1 a.m., I just can't do that anymore, <laughs> you know? And I don't know how to like, I don't know where like the, the self-care versus like laying my life down for them. Like, I don't know how to draw the line where it's like, dude, I can't hang out tonight. Like I'm tired, but I don't want them to feel like I don't want to, or like I'm, I don't know if that's making any sense and I wish you knew me, but um, I, I, I hope you know that I love my kids and I want to hang out with them. It's just that like when we're watching the office until like 1am, like I'm tired the next day, you know, like help me out. I like, I love you. I want to hang out with you, but like, I got to go to sleep. Um, so yes, friends. And then like the, the navigating like my own self-care but like I want to love them at the same time you know so so one thing about their friends I've I know that everybody a lot of parents get worried about video games but during this whole thing, I've been just like saying, let your kids play as much video games as they want. Yeah. And, and the reason being is because it has become so social. That's actually where they're getting to hang out with their friends. And 
and and people are like, yeah, but they're sitting in front. And I'm just like, if if Bob or Billy went over to Jim's house, guess what they're gonna do? They're gonna sit in the same room and they're gonna play video games, and you would be okay with that. And so part of it is like realizing we're in different times. We're we got different. You know, it's 2020. It's not 2019. Everything has changed. And so being able to be a little bit more flex on that, I think can be really helpful for them. Um, I think that, uh, you know, maybe, maybe trying to help them think about things like going to the park and just throwing the football at a friend or kicking the soccer ball, whatever they do, like where it's like, hey, you can still kind of social distance and talk a little bit, but, you know. It's 112 degrees. Yeah, that's right. In a little bit, that'll happen, yeah. right? It's being able to maybe be creative about some of that stuff. Um, we love our kids. We can't stand our kids sometimes. I mean, one of my daughters, her favorite thing to do, especially when we're watching movies, is to put all of her weight on top of you like this. And it's, it's her, like, love language. But do you know, I mean, I'm a decent-sized guy, and she's not real big. But after a while, like, 100 pounds just starts to, and I'm just like, hey, can you get up for just a second, just so I can move, right? It, it's okay. We're humans, too. Um, and so I think it is okay for us to teach our kids that all humans need space. I think that's part of teaching, right? So we don't want them, I don't want my daughter to like be doing that with her friends when they're hanging out thinking, oh, this is okay. My dad lets me do this. It's kind of like, no, like sometimes I'm just like, hey, I just need a little space. Um, and so being, I think that is, that's just part of teaching okay. and being a human. And yeah. you know what? I think they're going to be okay if you go to bed at 12 o'clock. Or nine. Or nine. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do think, I mean, I'm glad you used the word self-care because I think in essence you're modeling that. Like there are things that I feel like, um, and this is easier to do with kids who are older and not toddlers, but like that I will say, girls, I need to go do yoga or I need to like, fix myself food right now because I'm hangry and you're, you're going to like feel that. Um, and so it's, it's, it's modeling, like tune into yourself and what do you need? So you being able to say, I can't hang until 1am. Um, it, it's really not even about them. It's about you, but, but that's good. Like they need that modeled. And I wonder what it would be like to even come up with the schedule, like one night a weekend, I can hang with you. Um, yeah. and the next night I need to go to bed at nine. And yeah. even in thinking of terms of like boundaries, um, we, adolescents push against our boundaries all the time. Um, and we think that they don't want them, but actually they do because boundaries are safe. Now they can be too rigid. And I think part of, part of being in this pandemic is like, where can we be lax on our boundaries, right? Like bedtime was like out the window for us. Um, and so we're trying to like rein that back in right now. Um, and it was fun and it was good, but we've had to kind of be like, oh, we need to pull that back in. Um, and so even the boundary of like Friday nights, I'm game 1 a.m. office night, like we, we can do that. But, but Saturday nights is my night. Like 
And yeah. it doesn't have to go to bed. Like maybe that's your night to watch your own show in your room by yourself. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, in fact, we just started this where nine o'clock we're off duty. They can read, they can do art, they can do whatever they want as long as it's not a screen. Um, but we're allowed to do whatever we want, which might include a screen at night, right? And, and that, that is like really working. It's not in stone. This isn't working yet. We're still working at it. That's okay, because this is a long term. Uh, it's gonna take them a while to figure out we really mean this. Um, and, but but this, this is what we're trying to do, just to kind of set some, some space for us. Yeah. I, you were talking about the friends and like their lack of being able to hang out with all their friends and who they want to. I, I do feel like one of the things that hasn't brought, that we haven't talked about or hasn't been brought up yet is the idea of grief. And I mm -hmm. think um, that feels like a huge thing that we are all encountering. Um, and I don't, I use grief not just in loss of life or the death of somebody, but grief as something doesn't pan out as you hoped for or as you expected. So really the last six months, we are all grieving. <laughs> um, some of us have been more fortunate than others that we can say, oh, I'm grieving that I didn't get to go on a vacation or this. Um, and then others are grieving a whole lot more. But for adolescents, when their whole world and their self-identity and self-development is supposed to be wrapped around them being in relationship with peers, that is a huge grief. Um, and so even putting language to that and, and modeling to them, like, how do we grieve? Um, which may sound like, oh, that sounds so dramatic. <laughs> but when I do talk to people and I ask, like, how did you learn how to grieve? And they'll say something like, oh, well, nobody in my family died. And I'm like, oh, you still learned how to grieve. Like, when you were in first grade and your best friend moved away, that was your life. And therefore your heart was broken. And so if your parents said, suck it up, you'll make new friends, that's how you learn to grieve. Um, and it maybe just isn't a one-time incident. Sometimes it is, it's usually a pattern, but we do in this scenario, especially with adolescents and friendships and not being in school and those who are missing like huge markers like senior year and um, that's a lot of grief that they're having to navigate and a lot of them maybe for the first time really having to wrestle through what will they do bodily, physically, emotionally with, with these ideas and feelings of grief, so. Any last minute questions as we wrap up? Um, Caleb, I'll, I'll uh, and Elise, I'll wrap, wrap up with uh, one for um, people that watch this after the fact uh, on our podcast or on the website. Um, if we wanted to learn more about you guys, the work that you're doing, uh, where could we go to figure that out? And then two, any last minute resources uh, that you direct uh, parents and families to? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so you can go to our website, which is phxcounseling.com, and that has 
I mean, all Counsel those. It's Counseling Collective. Sorry. <laughs> PHX. We don't get our own website. Is it phxcounselingcollective.com? Yeah. Um, we're also on Instagram. Um, and any of those um, avenues would, you know, direct you to Sarah, who's our um, practice manager. Um, and she could kind of relay any questions you might have. And I will throw that out there. If you have lingering questions or thoughts, um, feel free to contact us. Either that way, she will just pass on emails to uh, our individual email and accounts, um, the office phone numbers on there. So yeah, and if you just Google Phoenix Counseling Collective, you will probably find us. So, and we are more than happy to connect with you after this. Uh, resources. Yeah, resources. I, I really do think Daniel Siegel's books are really, uh, like, really steeped in common sense, but also uh, a lot of science and, and our, what we're learning about the brain and what we're understanding the impact of what's happening. Um, so in, anything by Daniel Siegel is pretty helpful. Um, I, I'm not just on my phone for jollies, but there's another, there's another Instagram account. So I, uh, the disclaimer, it's my, it's my brother and sister-in-law. Um, but they, he's a PhD, marriage and family PhD. And my sister-in-law has a degree in counseling as well. But theirs is couples.counseling.for.parents. Um, and they have a lot of stuff about um, counseling, like marriage stuff in the midst of being parents parenting things so they've got they're a lot great of resources they're on instagram and there's just great tidbits that they post they post like every single day um and so i it is a great resource just for even conversations and and thinking about that so i'm glad you thought of that awesome well thank you guys so much thanks everyone for for being a part of this thanks caleb and lisa not only uh for leading us through this but for all of the work that you guys are doing in our city. Really appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. thanks. Yeah, all right. thanks for having us. Well, have, have a good night, everyone. Okay, all right. you guys too. Bye. Bye.